Just before we start, a quick announcement. There are very, very few people now that we will be taking Kilkenomics out of Kilkenny for, but Naomi Klein is one. Naomi Klein burst on the scene many years ago, about 20 odd years ago. I interviewed her for a show I did called Agenda with a book called No Logo. She's in a series of books and documentaries over the past few years. Lots of you will know, for example, The Shock Doctor, and she is back. She has a new book out called Doppelganger. And I will be talking to Naomi on Friday, the 29th of September in the RDS in Dublin at 8 p.m. sharp. Early access tickets go on sale to Patreons. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams if you'd like to join us or on general release on Monday. So that's me and Naomi Klein in the RDS, 29th of September as part of our Kilconomics Festival. See you there. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. I hope all is well in your world. This podcast, we're going to continue our travels around Europe, looking at European countries, societies, economies, political structures, histories, all that good stuff. And we're going to the wonderful country of Portugal, in a couple of minutes, one of the most fascinating economic histories out there. Really, really fascinating. One of my faves, Mac, I have to say. It's an amazing place. I I love Portugal. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Particularly northern Portugal. Well, I'm going to tell you a story about northern Portugal, but you you were talking to me about social commentary there just before we came on. (laughs) Yeah, I'll get into trouble for this. But apparently there's a new thing that, that happens now. Where where I, does this happen, John? Where this happens in people's houses. Let me get okay. into it. Okay. <laughs> but one of my girls, she had a Prosecco and painting party. I hear. Where, where a few of them come around to the house, they bait into the Prosecco and they paint. Like they paint pictures. And it's great crack. They had great crack. But apparently one of them was saying to me, yeah, I but. I love it. I love it. One of the local schools has one of the, the parent council meetings or whatever have turned it into Prosecco and prayer. No. <laughs> That's a thing, apparently. Prosecco and prayer. 
So this is a, this is kind of an iteration of water and wine at mass. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. You just you just you just neck the wine. So so rather than painting, uh, you are this is this is worthy of Russell Carroll Kelly. Actually, Paul Hart, if you are listening, there's your next week's column. Okay, Prosecco <laughs> painting, Prosecco and prayer, things that are happening in suburban Ireland, yeah. shit that you wouldn't believe. Behind okay. the twitching curtains, yeah. Behind the twitching curtains. Now, it's funny you mentioned Porto, John. Mm. I'm going to tell you a story about Porto when the first or second time I was in Portugal. So it's 1990. It's a long, long time ago. And I'm in Lisbon and I go up to Porto. And yeah. Porto is a beautiful, beautiful town under the bridges there. You've been there Loads under the bridges. bridges yeah, fab. Really It's all these little bars. It's all these yeah. little bars, you know, little wine bars and everything. And then in 1990, it was a very, very different country. So, uh, and back then I used smoke fags. So I ran out of fags. So I said, and they were selling, they sell smokes in different bars, right? And in the wine yeah. bars that I was sitting in, there were no, no fags. So I asked the geezer and he said, ah, yeah, just around the corner, there's a big bar, there's a big cafe there, in there, and you get fags at the back, back of the thing. I said, grant. So I walk in to the bar and I'm walking and it's a long, long, long sort of corridor, this big, big place. So I'm walking down, there's tables on either side and there's a cackle of young, very, very attractive girls around this bloke. And I'm walking down and he looks at me and I look at him and I recognize him immediately <laughs> as a bus driver from Dunleary, right? I said, right. Do you remember when the buses, do you remember, John, when the buses went to, when they got rid of the bus conductors, he was a bus conductor, right? Yeah. And they got rid of the bus conductors in the late 1980s. Yeah, they yeah. They were the driver. Conductors. Yeah. yeah. They went to, you know, you know so the, the bus conductor was a character. I don't know if you're a young, if you're a young listener, you won't get this idea. But you know, the bus conductor was part of Dublin's social background noise. Fairs please, fairs please, right? Yeah. So yeah, I look yeah. at your man, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and I know that he knows me, and he knows that I know him. And he <laughs> walks up to me, he breaks away from this little group of very, very attractive young girls. And when I say young girls, young women, yeah. and he just walks up to me. And he walks straight past me, like in a Western, and he says, say fucking nothing. <laughs> so I, so I'm thinking, okay. Uh, the yards the he bar. was spinning, I'd say. But, yeah, I don't know. So I go to the bar, and then he, he acknowledges me. Jesus, Macker, yeah. how are you doing, right? And I say, uh, how's it going? You know, his name is Joe. And I say, how's it going, Joe? And one of the young ladies says, young women says, how do you know Dr. Joe? <laughs> uh, I'm saying Dr. fucking Joe. <laughs> I, I say, I've known Dr. Joe for a long time. <laughs> I know Dr. Joe didn't do his intersert, right? Yeah. <laughs> this Go fella, on, Joe. This Go fella, on, Dr. This Joe. Fella, this fella, whose name will be, will remain nameless because he could still be there, right? Was teaching Anglo-Irish literature in the University of Porto. What? <laughs> really? I swear to Jesus, right? Like, okay, he'd obviously fabricated everything, okay? And he was talking Joyce and Beckett and Yates. <laughs> and this was a cackle of his students around him who were like standing at the altar of wisdom and these pearls coming from Dr. Joe, who I know was a bus conductor. Right? <laughs> that is like, fantastic. Isn't that amazing? 
<laughs> and we had a couple of scoops and I just walked out and I was just chuckling to myself. Dr. Joe, amazing analysis of, you know, the influence of Anglo-Irish literature on this, that and the other. And I'm looking and saying, you fucking spoofer, you spoofer. A big set of cojones on him. (laughs) A big set of cojones on him. A big set of cojones on him. Anyway, there you go. That's my Portuguese story and Dr. Joe, the bus conductor. Uh, Big shout out to any bus conductors out there. It's a great yarn. And uh, I hope you're still there. I hope hope you're still there teaching Anglo-Irish literature to all, to another generation, to another generation. (laughs) So we're going to talk about uh, Portugal this week, John, and I think we should go directly to an old mate of mine, Pedro Fonseca. Pedro Fonseca worked with me years and years ago, brilliant analyst, uh, all around good laugh, really good fun guy. And uh, as I think I said when we were chatting to him, John, top rated analyst on Portugal in the city of London for years and years and years. So yeah, let's go to Lisbon. Now, as part of our summer tour around the world, well, certainly around Europe. And then last week, of course, we had to go to China to figure out what was going on in China. And then we're going to come back to China maybe in a day or two, talking about the new BRICS phenomenon down in South Africa. That was happening just the last couple of days. But one country that has always intrigued me is the country of Portugal. And it's intrigued me for many, many years, mainly because, mainly because when I studied in Belgium, I shared a house with four Portuguese lads. I'd never met Portuguese people before. And we had such a total laugh. And the similarity with Irish people was just extraordinary. First of all, we were the two poorest countries in the EU at the time. We had no money. Every All the other students had great kit. And they had, you know, some of them had like the cars and some of them had bikes and motorbikes and things. And the Portuguese and the Irish had actually nothing. And we were all there courtesy of a grant from the European Union. We had a really good time. And then over the years, I've traveled all around Portugal, Alentejo, Evora, Montserrat, all these places, and of course, Lisbon. But I'm going to bring you back to the late 1990s. And I am in a place called Sintra. And I'm about to meet my next guest, Pedro Fonseca, an old, old mate of mine. One of the top, actually not one of the, was the top rated Portuguese analyst in the city of London for years and years and years, certainly late 90s, early 2000s. And I'm in Sintra on my holliers, and I'm meeting Pedro for a drink. So I'm meant to meet Pedro, and I keep phoning his phone, and he's not answering. He says, don't worry, call me, call me, and we'll meet up in a bar, I'll give you... I'm phoning, and suddenly I get this kind of very muffled... And I say, Pedro, where are you? He says, man, I'm in the casino. I shouldn't be on the phone. I said, okay. He said, but I've just been kicked out. I said, why? He says, they've accused me of being a card counter. And here he is on the line for Portugal, <laughs> the finest card counter in the casino in Estoril, Pedro Fonseca. Pedro, how are you, man? Very, very good. There's, there's easier way to make money than at the casino. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're now in Estoril, aren't you? So that's the casino central. Yeah, I'm avoiding it though, the, uh, the actual casino. <laughs> so what was happening? You were, the, was it the croupier? Was, uh, the croupier was accusing you of counting cards. Yeah, some people came around and weren't too interested in me being a customer anymore. Right, because you were winning? I was winning, yes. And they, th- they thought I was doing some dodgy things with another guy who was also on the phone. So 
Oh, so it was my phone call to you that prompted yes. the act. Oh, I didn't realize. <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus. <laughs> and I was winning, and they were thought, okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was. So I busted your flush. Yeah. I busted your winning streak. I'm just on to my banker, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All I was looking for was actually where was the best place for Vino Verdi that night? You know, where was the best bar? Where you go? Restaurant. It cost me some money. <laughs> Listen, it's great to see you. So, Pedro, you're you're back in Portugal. You're you're in Estoril. Irish people are very very close to Portugal, particularly those who play golf go to Portugal a lot. Mm-hmm. I know lots of young Irish people have emigrated and resettled in Lisbon. Yeah. I know a lot, a lot of people have houses built around the Algarve. So that's the sort of one side of Portugal that we see. But give me a bit of context, the Portuguese economy, but particularly the history of the Portuguese economy first. Because when I was there years and years ago, Portuguese mates of mine, before I met you, Pedro, took me to Belen. And they took me to the monuments of the discoveries and the monuments of the Portuguese extraordinary expansion through the Atlantic and then, you know, into, into Asia, into Africa, into Latin America. Give us a sense of all that before we start. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose due to our, the country's location, uh, David, I mean, the king took, the, the country took a decision in the 1400s. Let's, let's try to get to India. Let's, you know, get our trade routes, you know, avoid Venice, avoid Genova, and let's do it. And the fact is they did it and they opened huge amounts of markets, um, also did their own damage as colonial invaders, as you can imagine, stumbled into the new world as well by finding Brazil. And we had, it was a great mercantile country, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, uh, things were going quite well. We had a dynastic union with Spain, which didn't go too well for 60 years. We inherit a lot of their problems and enemies, such as the French, the Dutch. But at the end of the day, we had sort of the first move advantage when it comes to opening up the world by the sea. But you had other bigger countries which came after us, the UK, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch. So we got squeezed out from a lot of places, other places we kept. But I think the uh, the drama from Portugal is that um, particularly the 1800s weren't very good. We had a very tough Peninsula War against Napoleon. The British helped us, but at the end of the day, it was a lot of lot of fighting, a lot of scorched earth policies in terms of the fighting. People think of it as the Russians were the first ones to do it against the Napoleons, but we did it a few years before. That's really quite tough. The Industrial Revolution, Portugal was not the epicenter of the Industrial Revolution. We fell further behind. We got rid of our kingdom, our kings in 1910. That was nice. But we had a, a period of just ineffective Republican democracies. A bit like Italy in the 18, 1980s, you know, we had a new government every yeah. six months. That wasn't good. And then finally we got Salazar afterwards. And this, you know, that's very important because he was our fascist dictator and he ruled for almost 40 years. So the big part of what we are it was shaped by him. So what did Salazar bring to the table? Well... For starters, we became a very inward-looking country. That's very interesting. You wouldn't think of Portuguese as inward-looking because no, on the country, you think of Portuguese. We're open yeah. to everybody. We've been head of a, of a colonial empire for such a long time, but it was inward-looking precisely because we had delusions of a colonial empire. Explain that to me. Well, he used to put a map of Portugal of all our colonies, superimposed on Europe, and say, "Look, 
how big we are. But we had a saying which was proudly by ourselves. So as a way of keeping control, we we have we're big enough. We don't need to be with all the dangers of interactions with other countries. We try to limit as much as possible. Uh, the problem is we were not much of a colonial empire in terms of trade that really helped hurt us. We try to be self-sufficient too many things. So we had an outsized agricultural segment. And what happened at the end of the day is we then got a colonial war in 1960. So that's costing us money. So if you look back what Portugal, where was Portugal in the 60s, and 50s, 60s, 70s, is that he did not want the country overly educated either because that's unstable. So you had a country which was undereducated, at war, with little freedom, it actually was not such a great place to be. And the truth is you had huge amounts of immigration out of Portugal into other parts of the world for economic reasons, because people did not want to go to Africa to fight, all sorts of, all sorts of reasons. So that the story of Portugal is one of immigration to France, to Germany, to the US, even to Brazil. And then what we had a revolution in 1974, there were three Ds that people wanted, which was decolonization, democracy, and development. Okay, so let's look. So the decolonization, you're getting out of Mozambique and Angola. They're the two... And Guinea-Bissau. And Guinea-Bissau. So decolonization against Salazar, so democracy, and then this sort of maybe pro-European side of development. Let's join the, let's join the West. Let's go back into the fold. Let's join the European Union, all that sort of stuff. Even before that, let's, this is 74, we joined, this is even before the EU, let's develop the economy. It became a poor country because it just wasn't very sustainable. But the other thing I should mention is the economic model in Portugal was corporativism, okay, not capitalism. So think of corporativism as a midway between socialism and capitalism. So it's the focus is not so much on an individual, you can have your own business, but on collective decisions. So there's like a top-down approach, not quite socialist, but not quite capitalism. That also was not a very good economic model either. When Portugal had the revolution in 1974, 35% of our population was in the primary sector of the economy. Most developed countries in Europe are, were already in the single digits. So what you're talking about is agriculture. Agriculture, yes. So 35% of everybody were farmers, small farmers. That's enormous. Enormous. So it, it was a, a poor country, you know, but Salazar was happy because he had kept power. So. And Pedro, was yeah. Salazar, is it fair to say he was kind of a Portuguese version of Franco or was he a Portuguese version of Mussolini or where's the comparison? Okay, first of all, things like corporativism, it's very interesting you mentioned Mussolini because Mussolini was one of the first guys to install it. Yeah. He was the equivalent of Franco in Spain. And in fact, he helped Franco keep out of World War II because as fascist leaders, they were theoretically closer to Hitler and Mussolini than anybody else. And in fact, Portugal participated in the Spanish Civil War, helping Franco. So if anything, Salazar helped Franco get into power. And politically, Spain always supported Portugal for that reason, because he was always grateful to what Salazar did. But yes, Franco was a fascist. Salazar was a fascist. And so was Mussolini. So, you know, I think... Salazar was shrewder than a Mussolini or even a Franco. He kept power for quite longer, but obviously it's not particularly good news. It also meant that Portugal coming out after fascist 
by nature is a left-leaning country. That's very important to understand. The Portuguese psyche is left-leaning. Still now. Still now. If you look at the two parties in power, uh, fighting for power, one is the Socialist Party, the other one is Social Democrats. They both aim for the central stage, but always a little bit more left, if you understand. So it's variations on a similar theme, which in some ways you get some stability. You know, you're not likely to get too much the kooks in power. Yeah, swinging from side to side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in the late 70s, so Portugal was a mess. And the first thing we had after revolution was we had real left-leaning governments and we had the nationalization program, which was nationalized all these businesses. And so much people, businessmen flew away from Portugal to Brazil and to other countries. So that was a mess. Decolonization in Portugal was done haphazard, not like the Commonwealth. We were the last country in Europe to decolonize, also very important. We should have done it before, obviously. And we had wars in all our colonies. It was all a big mess. And suddenly we had one million Portuguese, mostly white, but also black, returning to Portugal almost overnight. And uh, that was, what, 10 15% population increase overnight. There's not housing for, wow. any, for everybody. So it's a real mess of a country. It's a beautiful country, but a lot of things going wrong. That's how it really was in the 70s. And that affects the Portuguese psyche, you know. And there's also a sense of resilience as well because, you know, been through so much hell. And then late 70s and early 80s, think about it. There were two global world recessions. That didn't help either. So things started getting noticeably better in the 80s. We had political stability. We started to reverse nationalization and we joined the the EU in 86. So that's when that really did help a lot. So that's the historical background a little bit, where the Portuguese are coming from. It's funny you talk about the Portuguese psyche. What always, what strikes people, a lot of visitors to Portugal, is that in contrast to their neighbours, Portuguese people seem to be much quieter, much more reserved. Uh, I remember being in a place called Montserrat, which is over in Alentejo, Oh, just on this beautiful, beautiful place up on up on a hill, right? And you're looking into Spain, and at night you can hear Spain. It's loud, it's brash. The bars are open, the clubs are open. On the Portuguese side, it's quiet. It's quiet. Tell me about the psyche. Tell me something about the psyche because it is a profoundly different psyche. They are. Yet, yet you, you shared the Iberian Peninsula for the last thousands of years. We do. I think that we're definitely much less exuberant than the Spanish, without a doubt. I think maybe it's the sense that things have not gone so well for us for quite a while, you know. It's tough, you know, when you, for example, have a government for, for a long time undereducates people, you take a lot of the people's self-confidence, you know. There's a lot, yeah. for a lot of Portuguese, there's not a lot to cheer about, you know, for a long time. You can also say the Spanish had their troubles as well, and they have other issues in Spain, such as, um, well, internal divisions we don't have. So Portugal, in many ways, in that sense, we're more cohesive. I think maybe in Portugal, we also carry a little bit more the maybe Arabic influence of resigned to fate. You know, even that song music we have, Fado, which means fate. So it's sort of resigned to, we'll take whatever what life has and we'll just keep going, but we don't, we're not going to celebrate all the time about it. <laughs> I <laughs> know, but it is. It's a, it's a, it's a total. And yet, yet, as a result of the colonialization, as a result of the expansion in this 15th, 16th century, we get to a strange situation where Portugal, a country of what, 10 million people, is the home to the fifth largest language or most commonly spoken language in the world. I mean, that's an amazing footprint to have. 
It is, it is. And it's also interesting. We sometimes go to countries and people tell us about the influence because we, for example, we were the first ones to go to Japan. So the Japanese always tell me, you know, you guys brought us gunpowder from China that changed our country completely. Or that, you know, the word for bread in Japan is pan comes from Portugal. So that was, that's part of the heritage when we really were traveling around opening doors everywhere. And that's a heritage. And of course, one of our colonies, ex-colonies, Brazil, ends up being a country of just over 200 million people. So that, that is part of the heritage. But, you know, that's some of that is so far back now, David. You know, you know I have focused on the more he- recent history because that's what hit our psyche. You know, fast government, unnecessary wars is very tough. On the other hand, we do have a psyche of being also the fact we travel so much, of being open to different cultures, happy to speak English to, as a way to communicate with other people from other places. That's nice. And that's also the thing you notice the difference on the language issue, you know. And again, I think Portugal has the oldest alliance with English. I think Portugal and England is the oldest alliance in Europe. It is, oldest, that's true. You know, that's for true. you know, which is which is what back to the thirteenth century or something really, really ancient. Thirteen eighties thereabouts, yes. And Long you know, way. you know you notice that that, you know, again, Portuguese people linguistically are much much more fluent in foreign languages than your Spanish cousins, for example, across the across the border. So you on the one hand you've got this internalization, Salazar turning the country in on itself, but yet the instinct seems to be, for the people, seems to be to go out and travel. I remember years ago when we were living in London together, Goldbourne Road, just up there in West London, full of Portuguese cafes, little Lisboa, all those things. So so the the Portuguese footprint is is enormous around the world. It is. And because we also, if things aren't well, we don't have fear of packing up and going. So that's always been part of the Portuguese. The world is, not, is our oyster in that aspect, you know, and we'll just go and do it. I think the language bit also is the realization that as a small country with an impossible language, um, we can't expect people to, to speak our language. It's, it's a bit like a Dutchman and a German, right? A Dutchman will always speak English better than a German, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, I also think in terms of language, this is a, a curious thing. In Portugal, we don't dub our TV. That's hugely significant. So we all we all know how Mr. T sounds, you know. Yeah, exactly. Federal, <laughs> <laughs> let's fast forward, right? Let's fast forward to now. As I said at the top of the program, big, big Irish interest in Portugal for a variety of reasons. How are things going? How's the economy going in Portugal now? Because one of these very, very big Irish events, a thing called Web Summit, moved lock, stock, and barrel yeah. to Lisbon. Portuguese government has been very, very supportive of, of that. So I was told there's visas being given for tech entrepreneurs. There's been visas being given. What, what's happening in, in Portugal? Well, f- first of all, I mean, despite everything, Lisbon and Portugal, it's actually quite a nice place to be in, actually. You it's know, an amazing it's, city. It's an amazing city. It's a lovely city. Interesting. It was falling apart for many years due to rental rules, but otherwise it's an interesting city, great weather. You buy the sea, good food. Everybody speaks English. It's not hard to see why it's, you know, why it's, why it's, it's popular. And yes, all these people coming into Portugal has been an important source of income. Now, first thing, let's talk about the challenge that Portugal has, Spain and Greece as well. Ireland, when you guys, you had your problems a few years ago, that was a different problem, even though it could always be part of the pigs and all that sort of stuff. The problem we have, of course, is competition, being competitive in a single currency, when you're a small country, you're a very open economy. That is still the number one challenge. You know, when you're a small country, you're going to import a lot. And if you don't export to match it, 
you're in trouble. And Portugal really got into trouble, just like Spain and Greece. Huge current account deficits, completely unsustainable. And because you can't devalue the currency, you have to devalue the real economy. And that's always painful because, as you know, that means unemployment has to go up, wages have to go down, and you have to restructure the economy. Unlike the Greeks who tried to protest, got onto the streets, that's never going to help, right? You know, we sort of, again, resigned to our fate. We said, okay, we messed up. Now we have to fix the, the issue. And we did. But first of all, it's been a long, long adjustment. Okay, it's been eight, nine, ten years of adjustment. It's not been fun. It's not been fun. So right now, in terms of trade deficits and so forth, we're stable. We're okay. But salaries have come down in real terms compared to the other countries. So the positive, you, you start seeing people investing in Portugal to take advantage of that. For example, the biggest bank in Portugal is now BNP Paribas. An outfit that I landed in after UBS. Yes, I remember. <laughs> God love them. And they don't even do lending much lending in Portugal. It's just the back offices and other stuff. So you start seeing people taking advantage, okay, low wages, a nice country to be in, let's move there. So you, you do start seeing some companies, you know, take advantage, as you expect when you rebalance your economy. That itself is, it makes sense. Because it's a pleasant place to be, Portugal has been positioning itself for the younger people, for technology, and that, that's, a, that's also important. Now, people coming from abroad, having income from, from abroad and living in Portugal is a great idea, and that's what all these digital nomads are doing. I don't know if we've reached a high water mark there, right? Uh, this may be starting, you know, we've reached the top. We're going to have less and less of that in the future. They may, that might happen. People coming from holidays, look, it's very trendy. Another high water mark may have been reached there. However, I think in terms of retirement, it's still room to go, right? It's still a cheap place to be. It's nice weather, and you're still going to get that. So are you saying, Pedro, because, I mean, what I noticed yesterday was we're looking at something that comparative rents. Rents in Portugal are rising much faster even than rents in Ireland. Yep. Rents in Lisbon. So how is that dislocating? Because the other thing is I want to say is, okay, is the future of Portugal kind of like the Floridaization of Europe, that you're going to be what Florida is to northeastern United States, you are to Europe. We'll go on to that in a second. But just the, the dislocation of people are coming in, getting visas, rich people are allowed to come. The tax system is very beneficial for capital gains tax as far as I, I remember. You don't pay capital gains tax if you... No, it's not. We, we have a, low, a special taxation where... Um, you pay less income tax and you pay no tax on dividends if you come from abroad. So you're attracting in rich people. Yep. But of course, what that does is that drives up property prices and rents and you squeeze out then the locals. And is that, tell me that story. Well, I think the average Portuguese is being squeezed on two fronts right now. And remember, the starting point from a country like Portugal is not a rich middle class, right? Yeah. Right. First of all, wages have not really grown any, anywhere you know, we're back to where we were 12, 13 years ago. So people are not feeling richer from a revenue point of view. And now we have high inflation, which solves a tax on the poor people. So people are feeling the inflation. People are feeling the interest rates because Portugal, like Spain, like Italy, but unlike Germany, for example, we have variable rate mortgages. So people are really being squeezed there as well. And now you're being squeezed on the rents as well. So if you, if you switch to rents, that's happening as well. So yes, I think there's a real squeeze there. The high prices in houses has meant a lot of people have become richer. A lot of people have moved 
to poor parts of Lisbon or, or the suburbs, but has allowed them to have some cash to spend. That has helped the economy, but that can't go on forever. Um, but there's a dislocation. You know, society, there is a definite dislocation. A lot of neighborhoods now are becoming you know, a lot of French, a lot of Irish, a lot of Americans. You see it. It's not 100% bad, but there is always that question, how, how long will this continue? Will Portugal five to six years from now do what Barcelona did and start telling people, you know, back off? Yes, net, off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But net, net, it's been a positive impact. You know, it's a positive impact. I used to wonder at London, because I was there, I arrived there in 94, and I saw a lot of London change. A lot of places, you saw much less British people than in the past. I mean, I was living in Marlebone, which was American and French ghetto. And I thought, well, Portugal, at least we live in our own areas and now it's it's also changing so um the difference i think the difference between the average portuguese and a foreigner in terms of money is greater than the average british person in london and a rich foreigner so the potential for displacement is big and can continue pedro is there a divide between north and south portugal like lisbon and, and the algarve compared to Porto and up the Silver Coast? Northern Portugal was always a big area for industrialization. The area around Porto was a big industrial area. So Porto and Lisbon are both industrial areas. And people politically in northern Portugal were traditionally more conservative and more Catholic. So when the, when the fight back happened against the communists, it, it started from up north. So from up north, they're more conservative, more religious, but with a fair amount of industry, Algarve has never had anything else but tourism. And yeah. south of Lisbon, it's mostly agricultural. It's the poorest part of Portugal. But in general, Portugal is a relatively small country, relatively cohesive. You know, people all right. often overstate the difference between somebody from Lisbon and somebody from Porto. We're a lot more alike. Having said that, Porto is a lot cheaper than Lisbon. And you start seeing a lot of younger people going to Porto because it's better value for money. Because the whole thing of fluoridization, I think you're getting a bit of that, but you never know how far it's going to go. You know, how how big will it get? You know, will people go to Valencia next? You know, what's the next? Where's the next sort of place? Uh, tell me, yeah. Pedro, what's the relationship with Brazil? When we were hanging out together, myself and these Portuguese students, I'd ask what they, they would tell us about Brazilian telenovelas and how Portuguese would sit in and watch these Brazilian soap operas and have Brazilian names like Kiki and Tiki and blah, 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 blah. What is the relationship between Brazil and Portugal? Well, the Brazilian soap operas have been very professional for a very long time. And late 70s, early 80s, there was a staple of Portuguese TV because Portugal did not have the quality soap operas back then. So it, it was quite influenced. I think that the key thing about Brazil for now, for us, is it, it is a very important source of labor because as Portugal salaries are still relatively low, a lot of the Portuguese ha- are still immigrating abroad. But typically right. people so you, it's the same situation as Ireland. We have lots and lots of net immigration, but a huge amount of Irish, certainly graduates, are emigrating all the time, like tens of thousands every year. Absolutely. The same happening in Portugal. They go to Germany, engineers and so forth. At the same time, as the service hospitality sector has exploded in Portugal, you need people to do these jobs. And frankly speaking, without the Brazilians, Lisbon would not work. Really? Yes. A lot of the workforce in restaurants, hotels, even desk, you know, front desk, whatever, a lot of them, huge amounts of Brazilians. 
there's probably now at least 400,000 Brazilians in Portugal, 4%, but I would imagine at least 200,000 last four or five years have arrived in Portugal. So we absolutely need them because, you know, otherwise there'll be a lack of, of labor force. But in general, Brazil, I think, because it became independent from Portugal almost well, about 200 years ago, it's viewed as a brotherly country, not as some sort of ex-colony, you know. And there's always that a bit of that competition, a bit of, you know, taking the mickey out of each other. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's a very friendly relationship, you know, because actually Brazilians – I often say Brazilians are like Portuguese people squared, i.e. they have their <laughs> virtues and our negativism in, in excess. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, they're extreme Portuguese. <laughs> no, but it is true. You're right. I like those extreme Portuguese. So let's project forward, right? So if you look at, you know, we're talking about over the last hundred years, distinct phases. You've got the Sal- Salazar phase of stagnation. Then you've kind of got the EU phase up until the 2008 crisis of optimism, growth, development, infrastructure. Then you've got the 2008 crisis and the last 10 years, and everything has to be seen against the background of that. And now looking forward, you know, you were talking about maybe, or I was just suggesting maybe the Floridaization or Miamiization of, of that part of the world where rich Europeans go there to retire, which you're definitely seeing that as a process. But, you know, the way in which, let's say, for example, Ireland transformed itself in the same period from a very backward, poor country, possibly poorer than yourselves in the 1970s, or certainly knocking around there into quite a wealthy country. Is there any prospect of Portugal doing something similar, you know, becoming a multinational hub or something something similar to that, that, that there's a trick that the Portuguese are about to adapt that would propel the economy forward? Or do you think it's going to be much more slowly? Unfortunately, there is no silver bullet, and but some of the sort of the schemes, the ideas are are the technology angle. You know, trying to make it an IT hub because, you know, all these IT people want to live in a sexy city, and Lisbon is a sexy city, so that's the whole projection. But it's a tough world out there right now. It's good enough that at least we've stabilized our balances, external balances. But I don't think it's that easy. There are structural issues in Portugal must do rather than kid ourselves. And I'll give examples. We need to f- make further changes in our labor laws, make it more flexible. We need to get our court system working better with writing some of the rules so things can be more pragmatic. Portuguese, often we do lack a bit of pragmatism. We have to have a society with a little bit less empathy and more pragmatism. Okay, Portugal, like a lot of Latin societies, is heavy on empathy. And too much empathy sometimes is not a good thing. Oh, that's not a bad thing. It makes for it makes for a nice place. It does. <laughs> but, yeah. And we have to work things out like meritocracies. We need to do that a bit better. So these are these these are boring stories, David, but this is the nuts and bolts that gets a country up and going, right? As long as we don't fix these problems, there's a cost, right? It's a cost if the labor laws are tough. It's a cost if the legal system is slow. All the stuff is sort of real. And we need to we need to sort this out. Actually, this is serious stuff because never forget when you're a small country with an open economy in a currency you can't devalue, you're always going to be vulnerable. You have to remain stressed if you're in charge. You can't get too uh, diluted because that's what Portugal, Spain uh, did, and Greece did during you know six seven years where we run up huge external you know deficits, thinking that somehow <laughs> it would sort itself out. You know, miracle. 
and it didn't happen. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And 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 to be honest, we could go back again in trouble if not careful. It's, it's very tough out there, you know. It's a tough world. Globalization is wonderful, but it has a downside. And I'm and I'm completely pro globalization, but it's a it's a responsibility if you're in charge. You, you can't let your country impoverish like they did in the run up to the to the crisis because the country on a relative basis to other European countries, has become more impoverished. And let me go on the thing is right now, because asset prices have gone up, there's a lot of people feeling rich. But revenue-wise, a lot of people are not feeling that rich. And particularly it's the younger people, because all the younger people get screwed, right? It's a really good place to end, Pedro, because it will resonate a lot with a lot of listeners, you know, particularly Irish people and Irish people living abroad, is this bizarre situation that's very, very similar to Portugal is asset prices have got up. So those people with assets feel wealthy and feel, and they are actually, they are much wealthier, but the young don't have those assets. So they're being priced out all the time. And it's this weird situation where we've, we've said a lot in the podcast where Irish people apparently live in a rich country, but they don't feel it. Absolutely. And it's this cleavage between assets and incomes. Uh, Pedro, it's great to see you. Great to talk to you. That was wonderful. Fantastic stuff. Thank you very much. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Did you ever get into the fado music, traditional Portuguese singing? Lamenting, sadness, yes. sorrow. Yes. John, I can see you in Alentejo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it is lovely, but there's only so much you can listen to because really it does, does bring you down. But it, it is that thing that the slightly melancholic air of Portuguese yeah. people, it's really different to the buzzers across the border. Spanish. But it was interesting what, what Pedro was saying, though, like the parallels between Ireland and, and Portugal are quite, Absolutely. Yeah, are quite um, obvious. Yeah, what he was saying there about, you know, Portuguese, no problem packing their bags and going, you know, no problem at all. They're, they're kind of, the Portuguese are at home in the world. That's the interesting thing. Yeah. They're very, yeah. very good travellers. But you're absolutely right. The parallels in terms of the young people leaving, but also, John, that, that, that conclusion, that concluding bit there, which is 
you know, as asset prices rise, yes. young people get squeezed out. Yeah. And it's compounded in Portugal by the fact that asset prices are being driven up by wealthy foreigners coming in, not just, you know, big business people moving over there, but actually after the pandemic, lots of young Irish people went to live in Lisbon and that yeah. pushed up rents too. And, you know, it's, it's yeah, it, these are worldwide problems. But it's interesting, though, uh, what Pedro was saying also was that politically, the Portuguese are naturally left-leaning. So yeah. this kind of whole disparity growing now between the haves and have-nots, the asset owners and, and the young, is going to lead to, I would imagine, quite a bit of tension. Well, absolutely. I mean, they're left-leaning and they're experimental. I mean, these are the people who have experimented with legalizing drugs across yeah. the board, and it's, and it's worked, from what I gather. Yes, they are left-leaning, and as absolutely, as you said, nothing throws the gauntlet down to the left more than inequality and unequal access to housing, unequal access to all the, the good stuff that Lisbon has to offer. Yeah. But it, it, is, it is fascinating to hear him say that he thinks, and it's interesting, that globalization is a slog. And I think that in Ireland, if we didn't have the multinationals, could you, right? Because the Portuguese don't have them, right? Mm. We would also think that globalization is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And he was also making the point there, if you're not able to devalue your currency after a shock, all the adjustment comes on the real side of the economy, yeah. which is wages and unemployment. And their wages are only back to 2007 levels now, whereas Irish wages are miles ahead because of the multinationals. Yeah. So I think we should never underestimate the power of the multinationals to have transformed the Irish economic story. Because Portugal is a country that started more or less the same level as us. Salazar was a dictator, but an isolationist. There's echoes of De Valera there. De Valera wasn't a dictator. So obviously, but it's like Catholic, ourselves alone, look in la, in, inside, don't take any influences from outside. That was the story of Ireland for 70 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we've managed to turn it around and they're finding it difficult. So we should never underestimate the achievement. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.